on KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, online at kpfa.org. The time is now 3 p.m. Up next, Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule, so divide up. In darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Uh, today is Tuesday, February the 17th, 2015. I've been gone for a couple of Tuesdays. Last time I was on the air, uh, that was at the beginning of the last fun drive. And I read from a book of my own. We were using it as a premium together with an audio book, the same book, yes, uh, with me reading the whole thing. I've never done that, but I am grateful for the feedback on uh, what actually was a memoir. I remember having a battle with the editor. She insisted we have to call everything a novel. I I think uh, at some stage, think about the women's movement, perhaps, they they all got crossed, the editors, and they said, no, 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 no memoirs. We don't want any confessions. <laughs> that book was titled Telegraph Avenue, then My Telegraph Avenue. You know how that is. Uh, anyway, that book is still available, both the book and the audio tape. You can get them at kpfa.org, and you can subscribe to this station. Uh, I just wanted to thank all those of you who did call in and uh, pledge support to free radio, you know, the voice of the progressive vision, the folks here who keep the flame burning, yes, the keeper of the flame, <laughs> keep searching for a better day, wiser men, better women, you know, anyway, let us... uh Yes, let us work for progress in the lives of, well, all sentient beings, all life on the planet, you know, uh, our dear planet, uh, Mother, yes, make Mother Earth your Messiah. You know, they tell us that uh, the Earth, the planet, is actually an organism, you know, uh, Let's see, they call it Gaia, G-A-I-A. There's even a flag somewhere. I I had it uh, hanging out on my balcony for a while. It's the picture of the Earth from space. That's the one. Uh, it kind of helps people to keep in mind the natural world, the, you know, the miracle that 
human beings are only just beginning to understand, you know, uh, appreciate, well, I think maybe, hmm, maybe the earlier people, let's call them the prehistoric people, had a better uh, idea <laughs> of what the earth was about, you know. Uh, I guess the poets know, uh, they have known through all the ages, of course. Edna St. Vincent Millay wrote, uh, she's still very young, she wrote this poem called Renaissance, I believe that's French for Renaissance. She wrote, Oh, world, I cannot hold thee close enough. Uh, she was into romantic excess all her life. Oh, what a woman. Uh, she was my my mother's touchstone. Uh, Edna Mullay, yes. Uh, Edmund Wilson, the critic, said that she had the curse of Aphrodite. Something like that. You know, some guys uh, always assume that Passionate women are oversexed. Mm, of course, uh, she was, Vincent was, but uh, she was one of those, uh, let's call them, oh dear, uh, I don't know what the name is because we live in such a strange age that it's very hard to talk about uh, women and describe them as, uh, well, not lustful, but, uh, yes, Aphrodite, that's what she was. Uh, she didn't separate the body from the soul. Uh, a true pagan, you know. Uh, she made no distinction between the light, between the eyes, the divine spark, you know, and the flame between the thighs that drive uh, makes all animals, uh, what, eternal, everlasting through the centuries, uh, you know, rebirth, renewal, if you like, procreation. Anyway, <laughs> I think the poets, like Malay, celebrate existence. Uh, I remember in that poem, she throws herself on the ground, on the grass, and she, she, pushes the grasses aside and kisses the ground, the bosom of the earth. Now, it's usually when we get old that we discover some of that stuff. I remember the great George Sand, uh, somebody translated her last words. It was something like, keep off the grass. Anyway, uh, as we get quite old, we realize, uh, what is that, uh, we realize what it's all about. I don't know how that happens. Kind of a click. I suppose uh, people have been calling it for years. Uh, it's a cliche, you know, that we humans are part of nature. Uh, but uh, I guess I still think most folks, most humans, think that we're different, that we're special, that, uh, you know, the other species are kind of, you know, lower. It's hierarchical thinking. Uh, and then, of course, there are those. Uh, I certainly was one most of my life that believed all that stuff about written language. Words, words, words. You know, I'm discovering that it may be that languages do more to separate us. Tower of 
Babel, is it Babel or Babel? I always think of it as Babel, Babel, yes. Oh, dear. Uh, Every tribe or clan or nation, you know, uh, their borders are where the languages change, you know. Say, over the mountain, they talk a different way, and we don't speak their language, and we don't practice their religion or where their customs our god has a different name our customs are altogether different of course uh, now in the 21st century we have the world wide web so uh, universal understanding <laughs> is inevitable yes mm-hmm. uh, yes and yes the caliphate I can't wait for the caliphate, right? There seems to be a new split or schism all over the earth, but never mind. Collective consciousness will arrive in my lifetime. I just know it. Uh, I think maybe with young people that does happen a lot of the time, especially these images, pictures. Uh, I used to be uh, a word snob, a language snob. But I begin to believe that pictures may be better images. Now, words, words, you know, they can, they can uh, change meaning so fast. Uh, maybe they are too subtle. Uh, pictures, on the other hand, they communicate really uh, quick. And I think it's kind of hard to argue. Uh, One picture worth a thousand words. On the other hand, as we know because we're all media watchers, uh, it's easy to misinterpret or uh, uh, get the wrong idea from a picture. Uh, My cliché is always that perception is reality. You know how that goes. Uh, What is it? Uh, We see things not as they are, but as we are. You know that uh, cliché about, uh, you know, uh, where you are depends on where you sit. Last weekend, I was watching the pictures and images on my TV screen uh, on a cable channel, one of those wonderful animal planet channels. Oh, National Geographic, I think it was. And I watched a herd of African wild elephants. They walked 12 miles to mourn the death of a human. What was his name? Lawrence something. Anyway, he had been their friend for many years, it seems, and he was dying. And this herd of wild elephants came, and they all stood in silence. They came and waited the whole day until this man had died. And then the most amazing thing to me is uh, the story goes on and tells us that the whole herd, wild elephants, remember, they come back every year on the same day. You got that? (laughs) Elephants have calendars. My mother used to say, women and elephants never forget. Anyway, they have an annual remembrance day. 
walking 12 miles to visit their old friend or his uh, memory. Uh, I guess I slowly discover that emotional intelligence is not exclusive to human beings. Uh, I think most humans still project their own feelings. You know how it is with the pets and that kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> no. I think um, I think it's interesting to me uh, the way animals seem to know more about us than we know about them. And certainly, uh, they certainly communicate with each other. Uh, I don't know. I think of the ancient the ancient uh, creatures like birds they say birds are descended from the dinosaurs their songs are much more complex than our spoken language uh, and they've had uh, of course millions hundreds of millions of years to evolve some of them humans can hardly compete uh, I think I think that uh Dogs, for instance, yes. <laughs> I, I don't think, but you know, that they're really wolves, but, you know, they can adapt to anything. I, I think of the dolphins, you know, ancient souls. I think maybe the dolphins are really smarter than we are. So joyous. Uh, and the bonobos, a primate that uh, a lot of folks thought were chimpanzees. Let's see, about 25 years ago, they, they discovered that bonobos were not chimpanzees. They really laughed, tickle one and see. They are hippies, and they're uh, female-centered, I guess we would call it. I don't like the word matriarch because it's, uh, it always sounds like it's analogous to patriarch. Uh, the bonobos are just groups of women who... You know, uh, female bonobos, women's girls. <laughs> they, they, uh, well, uh, I don't like to talk about sex. It's not supposed to be, uh, legitimate on the air. It says never speak of, uh, specific sexual behavior. <laughs> anyway, they, they practice love, not war. They decompress by, uh, reaching out and practicing, uh, sexual behavior. Now, I think uh, we can recognize all of this without blushing. Uh, Mark Twain told us that uh, we are the only species that blushes and the only species that need to. D.H. Uh, e. Lawrence said, I never saw a wild thing sorry for itself. Hmm. Living in the present. Now, that's a neat trick. Humans keep trying to do it, you know. They practice meditation, that kind of thing. Uh, oh, wait a minute. In Brazil, I've, I've, seen, I've seen some folks in Brazil who live in the present, but uh, I think it's curious. It's because, well, Mark Twain says that uh, humans have the moral sense uh, because we need, yes, he, he says, we're the only ones who need it. Uh, I think, I think what he was talking about was our capacity for hypocrisy, for lying to ourselves. Uh, I think, uh, 
Our task is to know ourselves, the examined life. You remember the ancients, well, the classics. That's, I was thinking of Socrates the other day. I think, yes, we were supposed to study ourselves. The proper study of mankind is man, and even of woman. Uh, if we are to evolve, well, we're going to have to develop uh, along different lines. I think we're going to have to uh, develop certain capacities. We may just have lost them. That's hard for me to understand. Uh, I hope it's not too late. Our technology has blinded us to certain <laughs> realities. Technology is going to save us or kill us. Probably both. These days, I'm the sort of elder who fritters away my precious hours, golden hours, reviewing my notes, my scribbles, trying to put it all together, to add it all up, you know, to put existence in order, <laughs> linear nonsense. Now, uh, I do think old age is supposed to be a time for inventory. Lists, I love lists. Uh, this week, I was looking through these wonderful journals. I think uh, there's a collection I have called Revelations, Diaries of Women. Fascinating stuff. I went through tracing uh, people who were, well, when they wrote, they were my age. And I thought, well, now, have we made progress? I found one woman who, she's writing this when she was 82. I'm 81, yes. <laughs> but she was born 50 years before me. Now, uh, her notebook, well, it seems to parallel uh, some of my own, um, what is that, uh, thoughts and impressions. I guess I think that there have been a few changes over half a century. Uh, her book was called, she published some of it, it was called The Measure of My Days. And it was written by Florida Scott Maxwell. I picked her out because uh, she's pretty much unknown. This little collection is full of all the uh, superwomen, Virginia Woolf, uh, George Eliot, all those folks. But uh, this woman uh, is called Florida Scott Maxwell, born in Florida, 1883, educated at home. At 16, she went on the stage. There we go. These are the parallels I found to my own life. At 20, she began another career as a writer of short stories. There we go. After her marriage, she went to live in Scotland. She worked for women's suffrage. She wrote plays, raised her children. At 50, she began still another career. She entered training as an analytical psychologist studying under Carl Jung. There we go, Jung. <laughs> One of our 
one of my mentors, she practiced uh, in psychological, well, psychology clinics here, it says, both in England and Scotland. Now, that's an American, but she's gone over to the Brits. Now, living alone at 82, she keeps this private notebook and records her reactions to being old. Uh, her feelings at being at variance with her times. <laughs> Anybody who thinks always imagines that they are at variance with their times. Uh, anyway, in 1968, some of these uh, diary entries were published as The Measure of My Days. I'm sure you can find it uh, somewhere. Uh, her notebook is not... Uh, well, she doesn't use... Dates. I like that. Uh, she says there are few external happenings in old age. Now, that is different. Uh, these days, I think elders are all too busy. And indeed, uh, she says that old age is a place where she's justified in thinking two ways at once. <laughs> she continues on her journey. Uh, growth, you know, nature of love and work and the power born of claiming the self. It's what Carl Jung used to call individuation. This process makes her fierce with reality. Now, that thinking two ways at once, uh, I think it's F. Scott Fitzgerald who says the test of first-rate intelligence is to hold opposing ideas in the mind at the same time and continue to function. <laughs> that's it, that's it, that's it. Uh, she writes here, oh, she is funny, actually. She contradicts herself a lot. Uh, she says, a notebook might be the very thing for all the old who wave away crossword puzzles, painting, petit point, knitting. She says, it's more restful than conversation, and for me it has become a companion, more a confessional. She says, uh, only this morning I realized my cheer was partly because I was alone. I thought for an awful moment that perhaps I was essentially unloving, perhaps had never loved. Years of absorption and of joy? Oh, yes, I have loved, but enough? Is there any stab as deep as wondering where and how much you failed those you loved? Disliking is my great sin, which I cannot overcome. It has taken me my entire life to learn, not to withdraw. She talks an awful lot in this journal about being open to any thought, any new idea. Uh, anyway, she says, I wonder why love is so often equated with joy when it is everything else as well. Devastation, bomb, obsession, granting and receiving, uh, losing uh, everything again. It's a recognition often of what you are not, but what you might be. It sears and it heals. 
It is beyond pity above law. It can seem like truth. What is that? Oh, this mysterious world in which we know nothing. Nothing. At times, love seems clarity. It's beyond judgment. But this is a place that can also be reached alone, an impersonal place. Found, lost again. Love is asked to carry intolerable burdens. Love can be hard service, giving your all, maybe finding your all. It is sometimes a discipline enabling you to do the impossible. I'm skipping here because, naturally, I cannot read this all. I skip the stuff about her fears of death. Uh, she seems to think she doesn't fear it. Anyway, she says, The most important thing in my life was the rich experience of the unconscious. This was a gift life gave me. I only had the sense, I wish I had had the sense, to honor, to serve it. It taught me we are fed by great forces. I know that I am in the hands of what seems immortal. This makes me at rest in much of my being, but not in all. It is almost as if the order in me is barely me. I still have to deal with the chaos that is mine. It has taken me all the time I have had to become myself. Yet now that I am old, there are times when I feel I am barely here. There's no room for me at all. I remember in the last months of my pregnancies, the child seemed to claim almost all my body, my strength, my breath. I held on wondering if my burden was my enemy, uncertain as to whether my life was at all mine. Is life a pregnancy? That would make death a birth. <laughs> then there's an awful lot of stuff here about men and women. And uh, <laughs> I think that some of the things she says would undoubtedly hurt the feelings of both men and women. She says the intimacy that exists between men and women can seem the confrontation between good and evil the place where there is the greatest chance of their being resolved by compassion and insight it is here that souls are bared in the welter of complete exposure we meet our sins we can see when we should have accused ourselves and not the other she goes on in that vein, actually, she she seems to feel that women have been hurt and uh, that their response has not been wise all the time. She says, the hurt that women have borne so long 
may have immeasurable meaning. We women are the meeting place of highest and lowest, minutiae and riches. It is for us to see and understand, have pride in representing ourselves truly. Perhaps we must say to man, the time may have come for us to forge our own identity, dangerous as that will be. Oh, I I don't have time for all the charming stuff in which she describes that she finally doesn't have to worry about appearance. <laughs> yes, she says, in very truth, the old are almost free. There we go. Anyway, she finally adds, remember that William Blake said, any fool can generalize. <laughs> this has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air uh, next year at the same time. Uh, God willing. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow. drive is over. On behalf of the entire staff of KPFA, I want to thank you, you, and you for your generous support. We fell a bit short of our goal, so if you're one of the listeners that intended to pledge, please take a moment and go to our website at kpfa.org.